Amen. Good morning. Please do take your seats. If you're a guest of ours and you want to know about Central, I think you've heard it through the songs today. We are passionately scriptural, and we believe that the scriptures point to the, the wonder of the person who was given the name Jesus, because God is salvation. And we pray that as we've prayed together, sung together, worshiped together, everything has prepared you to receive the word of God. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. The ushers are going to come down the aisles, and they will give you a copy of the Scriptures if you haven't got one, and uh, we will then be able to follow through the text uh, together. Now, it is obviously an understatement. Again, if you need a copy of the Scriptures, just uh, raise your hands. It's obviously an understatement to say that most of you know what is going to happen on Tuesday of this week. Probably you're fed up of hearing about what will happen on Tuesday of this week. I wouldn't be giving anything away or speaking untowards if I said that both of the candidates, the major candidates, there are more than two, that really are vying to take the position of president of this country have their flaws. I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't already know. To say that our nation is a divided nation when it comes to this isn't saying anything anybody doesn't already know. But we have a choice to make. And one of the things that concerns me is that in seasons which go increasingly liberal, Christians all too often take a step back. We hunker down. We absolve ourselves of any responsibility that we have to be the force for change in the place where God has called us. Never in my, what, eight years now in this country have I just sensed that danger more than I sense it today. People are restless, they are frustrated, they are disappointed, and those of us with faith are faced with a temptation where the choice seems to be between two imperfect people to take a step back and do nothing. My message today is simply this. In seasons of clear disappointment, clear disagreement, open division, Jesus models stepping in and living out, not stepping back and hunkering down. Let me also say this, I am a green card holder. This is my third election. And so for the third election, I am not going to vote. Why? Because green card holders are not permitted to vote in federal elections. I'm well aware of my limitations as a pastor. I'm well aware of what I can say and what I can't say. So the good news is, I'm not gonna tell you what to do. I can't do that. I want you to know, therefore, that in my eight years in this country, joined in 2008, that was my first election, 2012, and now in 2016, in all of these elections, I have not been able to say yes to a single candidate. All I've been able to do in my heart is to acknowledge that whoever sits on the white, in the White House, God still sits on the throne. It's the Jesus Manifesto. That's what I sign up to. 
So I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. It's not appropriate. But I am going to tell you that Jesus says, in seasons of open disagreement, in seasons of conflict, what a Christian does not do is step back and hunker down. What a Christian does is step in and live out the Jesus manifesto that we're going to read in this verse. So in your Bible, have a look at this with me. I'm going to just speak a verse today, of two verses. I'm going to teach on two verses that initially they seem to be so insignificant, but they're so significant. And these two verses of Matthew chapter 5, 1 and 2, that is there on page 968 of the Bible that you were just given, sets the scene for what Jesus does in seasons of open disagreement, of tension, political tension, religious tension. And what we're going to see is that he introduces a manifesto that changes absolutely everything and encourages those people that have been touched by Jesus to be the change in the place where God has called them. Look at these verses with me. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. That's as far as we'll get today. Just that. Now, what's significant about this is that Matthew over the preceding four chapters, has been setting the scene for what is about to unfold. He has carefully, intentionally told the story of Jesus up until this point in such a way for people of the book, for people familiar with the history of God's people to recognize that in the person of Jesus, what we have is a special person with a special message. The indicator for this is, is that word mountainside. He went up to a mountainside. This is the final glimpse, the final puzzle, if, you would, uh, if, if we can call it that, in a jigsaw that has just been pieced together for us to realize that Jesus is someone special because he goes up to a mountain. The significance with this, of course, is that over the preceding four chapters, Matthew has carefully presented the story of Jesus to draw a parallel between Moses, the great leader of God's people, and Jesus, the greatest leader, not just of God's people, but of all the peoples of the world. I want to flesh out with you some of these contrasts because today I want you to understand the Jesus difference. Jesus changes everything. And once you've been touched by Jesus, it changes everything, especially how we live in seasons of open disagreement. Look at some of the comparisons that we have between the two. Moses, born while God's people were suffering under a cruel leader. Jesus was born while God's people were suffering under a cruel leader. Moses was born with the leader trying to kill babies. Jesus was born with the leader trying to kill babies. Moses was hid in Egypt as a child. Jesus was hid in Egypt as a child. Both of them were raised by men who were not their fathers. 
both of them remained in a foreign land until the ruler died. Again, these are all in the first few chapters of Matthew. Both of them ascended to a mountain. Moses ascended to the mountain to receive the law. Jesus, in chapter 5, ascends to the mountain to give a new commandment, to issue God's manifesto for a very broken nation. Both of them fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Both of them were prepared for ministry through time in the wilderness. Both of them taught. Moses is, in Jewish tradition, responsible for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus, in Matthew, teaches five times. So you see the similarity here. Jesus goes up to a mountainside. This is the crowning glory, the final piece to help people who want to know who Jesus is and what he's about to realize, hey, this is a special person with a very special message. He is so special, in fact, that we need to avoid just thinking that Moses and Jesus are the same. Moses and Jesus have a similar mandate, but Jesus is someone far greater than Moses or any leader who has ever lived. Matthew wants us to see that. And so while there are similarities between the two, there are also dissimilarities. They're very different. Moses ascended to a mountain to be taught God's will. Jesus ascends the mountain to teach God's will. Moses ascends the mountain to worship. Jesus ascends the mountain and is worshipped. Moses' face shone from his encounter with God on the mountain. Jesus is completely transfigured and his glory outshines Moses and Elijah. Moses spoke in the name of God. Jesus speaks in his own name. Folks, Jesus changes everything. When Jesus went up to that mountainside, he didn't go there alone. He took people. See, Jesus ushers people into the very presence of God. Moses ascends on his own and comes back down because people cannot enter into the presence of God. But Jesus, through the cross, he takes us all into the very presence of God. He takes us with him. And when we focus on the wonder of Jesus, everything changes. Garland says this, when Matthew presents Jesus as Moses-like, he does not depict him as a new Moses, but as Lord, the Son of God. And as we move forward as a nation, you have to realize Jesus makes a difference. Now, part of what is going on here is that Matthew is preparing the scene for the ministry of Jesus. What is that ministry going to be like? Because this clearly is a special person with a special message. And so as we move on through these verses, we also recognize that as a special person with a special message, he also has a special mission for a very special season. The verse goes on and says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Notice that there are two groups of people mentioned here. The first group mentioned are the crowds. Why are the crowds there? 
Well, before chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, we read a passage about how Jesus did ministry. Jesus went about different places, villages and towns, preaching, teaching, and healing. The crowds were there, not because they were religious. The crowds were there because they were restless. They were from a very religious supposedly theocentric, God-centered structure to society. But the division that was there politically and religiously alienated so many of them that they backed off. Those of you who are here for our Messy Church series will grasp the context here. So many of the crowds were so disenfranchised with the political system and the religious system that they simply backed away. They wanted nothing to do with it. And at this time, the Bible tells us, when the time had fully come, God sends His Son. In this moment where the nation is so divided, things seem so fragile, people were questioning whether God was really in control, this is the time that God sent His Son to step into a situation to change it. The crowds were there not because they were religious, but because they were restless, because they didn't know what to do with the four dominant philosophical um, positions that had just invaded society. So often when we read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, we'll hear the term Sadducees. We'll, we'll read about Pharisees. Essenes may not be so familiar to us, but uh, they kind of really close to the Nazarite position from John the Baptist, and then we'll read of the Zealots. These were the four dominant positions, philosophies, at that point in time that governed the way that people thought and the religious leaders and the political leaders led. What I want to do for a few moments is I just want to highlight why they were so different. And hopefully at the end of this, you'll realize how messed up people were. And I think it's a very small step to realize where the crowds of people in this nation are at because they're so messed up with the stupidity being demonstrated by the leaders of this nation. They're restless. They don't know what to do. And so what is Jesus' model? Let's get involved in this, guys. Don't back off. Let's bring sense to this. Don't back off. I'll say it again. In seasons of open delusionment and a disagreement, Christians all too often step back. Oh, God's got this. Just let God do this one. But that's not what Jesus models. So I want to go through this, and I pray that the next time you read a, a story of Jesus and, and one of these kind of four groups come up, you realize what's going on. Because they were so different. And the people were so messed up. What is true? We don't know. So when you look at this, the Sadducees were wealthy conservatives. The Pharisees were middle-class Reformationists. The Essenes, well, they were communal exclusivists. The Zealots, they were radical revolutionists. And all of these people are spouting their ideology everywhere. Second, the Sadducees controlled the government. The Pharisees controlled the people. The Essenes withdrew from both government and people, but showed compassion to those who came to them. 
And if you are so fed up with life being driven by the other groups, you can actually go live outside the Essene community, uh, which uh, is basically very close to the Dead Sea, and you would have to live out there, I think it's for a period of two years, and if you'd be faithful to what they say for two years, they'd let you in. They treat you well, but you have to prove it in order to belong. And then you have the zealots, they wanted to mobilize the people for revolution. Now, the battle in the Gospels is for power. The Sadducees controlled the government, but they were afraid of the Pharisees because the Pharisees controlled the people. This is why you'll hear at the end of the Gospels, Barabbas, who do we let go? Barabbas or Jesus? They were afraid of the people. They're afraid of the Pharisees. The Sadducees, smaller group, wealthy group, controlling everything. The Pharisees have control of the people. So there is this suspicion between the two. Basically, that's to put it mildly. So this is where a lot of the the issues go. Now, what's interesting is that as we move on here, we'll realize the Sadducees don't like the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't like the Sadducees. The Essenes, they just don't like the priesthood at all. They think the religious system, just like many of us think, the political system is so corrupt, we want nothing more to do with it. And the Zealots, well, they don't like the Romans and they don't like the tax collectors. The Jews were cowards if they pay taxes to Rome because taxation is nothing but slavery. What's really interesting, the Sadducees don't like the Pharisees, the Pharisees don't like your Sadducees. But you know what? You read the Gospels. How many times do you read the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and then asked? They were common enemies. They didn't like one another. But nothing you like unites enemies by the fear of someone who seems to have more control than they do. It's the power of the common enemy. How many of you have seen this? Two people who don't like one another, suddenly they get on and you find out why? I'll tell you why. It's because they dislike someone else more than they dislike them. It's kind of what we got going on right now, isn't it? The Sadducees are literalists. They interpreted the first five books of the Old Testament literally. The Pharisees were interpretationalists. Sorry, my word there, I wanted to get the alliteration right. They interpreted it. They felt free to just interpret God's word in the first five books according to a new reality. Some would see that tendency in the church in certain sections today, right? Oh, come on, people used to think that this was wrong. But come on, we live in the 21st century today. There's nothing wrong with that. We just need to interpret the spirit of the Lord to suit our day. So we change the doctrine of marriage. Right? We see the same thing. One group is literal. The other one just interprets it and changes it. They didn't like one another for that either. And then you get the Essenes. They liked what you call inspired knowledge. Those people that talked that would say, thus saith the Lord. Used to those days? They were mystical. Listen to people who had this kind of prophetic insight into the mystery of the world that they didn't understand. And then the zealots were religious, flat-out extremists. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they argued over everything. Oral law versus written law. Oral law for the Pharisees, the tradition of interpreting the Old Testament with the prophets, the tradition is as important as what is written. 
Catholic background, people here will understand that. The traditions of the church are as important as what's written in the book. The, the Sadducee says, absolutely not. That's not the way that it works. It's just what's written in the Word, and that's it, period. Nothing changes. Everything stays the same. And so as a result of that, they disagreed on the resurrection. Why didn't the Sadducees believe in the resurrection? Because it's not talked about in the first five books of the Bible. Some people will say that the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. My personal opinion on this is, no, there are angels in the first five books of the Bible. What the Sadducees don't like is this hierarchy of angels that the Pharisees had. They would disagree over that. Now get this. This is awesome in Holland. You guys will get this. The, the Pharisees emphasized God's sovereignty. The Sadducees emphasized human responsibility. And they would argue about that. Now, living in Holland, the heartland of Reformed theology, many of you are probably here today, you grew up in the Reformed tradition, you know all about this. What really drives situations, we ask? Is it God's choice or is it human choice? The Pharisees emphasize God's sovereignty except when it comes to the matters of morality. Personal purity was important to them. God controls everything else. All you've got to do is get your life in order and God will figure the rest out. So there was this battle between the two over what the responsibility was in the world. The Sadducees were pushing, pushing, pushing for control. The Pharisees would take a step back and apart from morality on the outside, they would just let people do what they wanted to do. They were concerned with their purity issues. So you see the difference here. You've got the Sadducees, preoccupied with temple ritual purity. What matters to them is the temple in Jerusalem. You have the Pharisees, preoccupied with daily purity. You have the Essenes, preoccupied with preparing for the future. There was going to be this glorious revolution and God would, uh, would work. And then the Zealots were preoccupied with kicking Rome out and separating from the Gentiles. There were three things in the manifesto of the Zealots to establish the sovereignty of Yahweh worship, to basically rid the nation of, of of the Romans and Roman rule, and thirdly, to separate from all Gentiles and tax collectors. Now, look at this, guys. That's confusing. That's messed up. And the people are hearing this over and over again, and they're thinking, what's right? What's true? And then enter Jesus. And he goes up a mountainside, he sees the crowds. And he recognizes their need, and he ministers to them. They follow him. And he sees the crowds. He goes up to a mountainside, and then what does he do? We witness the second group of people that come into contact with him, and that is the disciples. And through the disciples in this conversation here, we recognize that there is a special mission for a special people. There are people being called out from the crowds. There are people who are being called out from the masses to basically begin this process of change by listening to the words that Jesus says. And this is fascinating. In Matthew, although there are crowds of people around Jesus at all times, the interpretation of his teaching is only given to those who separate themselves and come close to him and follow him. His disciples came to him and he taught them. Here's the question, and I'm starting to bring this home. To which of these parties did the disciples belong? Have you ever thought about that? 
to which of these parties did the disciples belong when they came to Jesus? What was their philosophy? What's interesting with this kind of question, of course, is that Matthew doesn't give us a list, a complete list of the disciples until Matthew chapter 10. So in Matthew chapter 4, he calls some of his disciples to him. He expounds on his manifesto. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is often referred to as the kingdom manifesto. He kind of explains this kingdom manifesto, how people who are truly have hearts after God through him are people who are salt and light in this world, who deal with money in a different way to the corrupt way that people deal with money, who have a preoccupation to obeying, not just to listening. And he goes on and on and on through, through, the, through the gospels and through this teaching. And then we move into the miracle chapters of chapter 8 and chapter 9. And there in chapter 9, we have someone called a tax collector who Jesus says, I don't you want, just want you to be a disciple of mine. I want you to be an apostle of mine. You're one of my twelve. And then, having done that, Matthew gives us the complete list of the 12. Now, from what I've just said, what strikes you with this? This is the complete list of the 12. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What strikes you here? What strikes me is this. <laughs> Do you see this? There's more significance to this too. We've talked about Sadducees being from the wealthy. James and John, we know this through the use of the Greek words that describe their fishing equipment and also through the fact that their father had servants who fished with them. They came from the wealthy section of society. In that regard, they would have been far more concerned with controlling things and controlling their wealth. They would have been far more in line, in all probability, with Sadducee position of politics than Pharisees. And then you have Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew, through the words used for their fishing net and, and other things, clearly came from the lower strata of society, more of the lower middle class than they actually did from the upper class with John and James. You see with John and James through the gospel, don't you? Their mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, can you do something for me? When you get to glory and, and you assume your seat at the, with the Father, can you just make sure that it's my boys that are sitting right and left? Because that's just the way the Sadducees thought. It's all about control. Peter, on the other hand, he's just in the dirt all the time. He's a practical kind of guy and often puts his foot in his mouth. Which kind of parties did Jesus call people from? Know the story of Nicodemus? John chapter 3, came to Jesus by night. Why? He didn't want his other people to see him. And who was there at the end of Jesus' life when he comes to bury Jesus? Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes out of the darkness and into the light. Jesus calls people out of every party. Jesus calls people out of every party. See, what we need to recognize is that there's a tale of opposites here with Matthew and with Simon. Matthew was a tax collector and an unpatriotic traitor, and Simon is a tax hater and a patriotic extremist, and Jesus calls them both. And he probably says, hey guys, you guys room together. 
you've got a lot to talk about. And so they not only room together, they live together, they eat together, they pray together, they share together, and all the while they watch Jesus at work together. This may be uncomfortable for many of us, but I believe it to be true. Jesus didn't come to found a new party. He called people to him from the different parties and recommissioned them. That's the kingdom manifesto. You see, because God's will is for the rule and reign of God that is experienced fully in heaven to invade all of earth. Every person's life, every party's life, every sect like the zealots, everywhere. And you know what his methodology was? His methodology was to call people and to speak to people from every philosophical persuasion and to call them to him, to rewire them, recommission them, and send them back out in their world to make a difference. Folks, for a long time, I didn't like this truth. You see, I grew up in a, in a, in a church and in an environment that openly taught that anybody who was in the Catholic Church, for example, could not possibly be saved. God had left the Catholic Church due to their idolatry and their false doctrine. That's what I was taught. And you know, when you don't know any different, what you're taught, you believe. Parents, make sure when you teach your children, you teach them from the broad perspective of God's view of the world, not just yours. Now, my mother was great. She used to open my mind, but I never truly saw that God actually chooses people and calls people to him from every part, every stream in the church, and actually invites them to take on his kingdom manifesto and sends them back into their world. I didn't want to believe that, and then I went to college, and I met a guy by the name of James. James and I had such a great conversation one day, and I said, tell me, tell me a little, about your, a little bit about your background. And I was resonating with him and connecting with him. And, and then he tells me he's Catholic. <laughs> I kind of looked at him and said, uh, you do know you're in an evangelical institution here, right? Yeah, that's what I am. H how can you say you're evangelical and yet you're Catholic? Uh, how can you do that, James? James, what about... What about this? What about this? What about this? Yeah. Some real bad stuff in our neck of the woods. <laughs> but Jesus has called me into that community because there are many people who actually need to be, hear about Jesus in it. He came to our school to be schooled in the scriptures. One of the great, great guys in my time in seminary. A another time, and about 1996, was ministering in London. And uh, a priest of a Roman Catholic diocese came to me and said, Craig, uh, would you be willing to help our really large Catholic diocese establish student ministry? Because unfortunately, too many Catholics believe that they, you know, you're baptized as an infant that makes you a part of the church, and then you go through confirmation, and through the confirmation, you kind of make your baptism your own, and that, after confirmation, that's it. But it isn't it. Jesus is it. And I looked at this priest and I said, how can you do that when the name of your church is Our Lady Immaculate? You've got a mediator between you and God that isn't Jesus. I can't compromise on that. 
And again, he, and I said, what about purgatory? And he looked at me seriously and said, what a load of rubbish. That's what he said. <laughs> and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, wait a minute, what, what do you believe then? He said, Craig, there's one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Jesus Christ. What am I getting at here? Over time, through conversations, I'm realizing that God works in strange ways. He calls people to him, instills their manifesto in his heart, and sends them back into some rather strange places. Places that on the outside we look at and think, can anything good come from that? And the answer is no. But something good can happen within that that can lead to transformation that means good comes out of it. Dutch Reformed, many of you know this. In our seminary in London, we had so many people in the Dutch Reformed uh, tradition, a tradition that was going liberalized, was liberalizing itself, was, go, was dying, and yet there were so many students from the Dutch Reformed who felt called by God to go back in and change it from the inside out. I can go on with story after story after story like this to illustrate this point. Jesus did not come to found a party. He came to establish the rule and reign of God on earth just as it is in heaven, and that rule and reign always happens from the inside out. And for the rule and reign of God to truly be manifest in this world, we need Christians to stop thinking that when there's open disagreement, we're going to take a step back, we're not going to do anything, we're going to resolve ourselves of responsibility, we're going to let God do everything and realize change doesn't happen that way. And I know that many of you are in here thinking, why on earth should I get involved in something on a Tuesday? Why on earth should I cast my vote? God's got this. And I want you to notice that the example of Jesus says that isn't the way that Christians work. Christians work by stepping up and living out the message of Jesus, not by stepping back and hunkering down and just saying God's got this. A friend of um, Pastor Kelly and mine is the guy by the name of Dr. Phil Roberts. Dr. Phil Roberts was uh, president, I think, of Midwestern Seminary, and uh, he did his doctoral degree on what happens in the evangelical movement when society goes liberal. Over and over again, and he's traced it over centuries, what happens when society goes liberal is the church goes more reformed. It's true. The Wesleyan church grew out of a movement of a man who was living in a society that was increasingly liberal and the church had become increasingly reformed. Now, there are many truths with reformed theology, but the problem with it is this. All too often it means I'm going to step back and let God do it. God's got the evangelism. God's got everything else. I don't need to do anything. And Dr. Phil Roberts showed how every time a society goes liberal, the church takes a step back and its theology goes more reformed. We emphasize the sovereignty of God and we forget that the kingdom manifesto that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 through 7 is a manifesto where we're the salt and light. We're the change. And if we're supposed to be the change, then when there are leaders out there that we don't like, do you know what we do? We offer them a better alternative. Folks, on Tuesday, your choice in the main two candidates, I don't believe, is the best that this nation has got. I believe they're a better. And I believe in order to make things better, you and I need to step in, not step out. 
Some of you are business leaders. God's hand is on. You need to recognize the importance of stepping in to the very culture-shaping communities, the decision-making groups in our own town, in our state, in our nation. We need Christians involved, not Christians stepping out. And as tempting as it is, folks, to take a step back, don't do it. Be the change. Step in. Now, I'll tell you what will happen when you do. When you do this, you will be opposed. You will be labeled. You will be maligned. People will come against you. It's going to happen. But there again, Jesus is our example for this, right? He brought in change for the world, and they killed him. When we step into situations like that, the same thing could happen to us, but that's just the way the change works. Those of you on our email list will know that on Friday, I sent out an email which gave some prayer requests from our campus in Jakarta. Last Sunday, Pastor Micah Kelly, we we just shared the great things that God is doing. You'll be, if you were here, you remember that we said we're not going to give you too many details about location, etc., because it's a dangerous place. Well, those of you who have got a news feed that actually talks about something other than the election will realize that in Indonesia right now, there are militant uprising. There's a militant uprising against the mayor of Jakarta, the city in which our campus is in. They're rising up because there are elections coming up, and for some strange reason, God actually ordained it that a Chinese Christian became mayor of the largest city. And rather than have a quiet life, this godly Christian man decided to step in and make a change. And the masses of people elected him. And so he rose up against corruption. He rose up to try and make that city a better place for Christians, a safer place for Christians. And the jihadists don't like it. So this weekend, 50, 60, 70,000 of them marched on the city. And they marched from the city to his house. They're intimidating people. Christians in, that, uh, in, in the city have sent Pastor Kelly and I videos. were showing, uh, showing us what they're doing to cars and, and places with Christian symbols on it. The fear there of the Christians in that nation is that, like in 1998, there would again be this drastic opposition to the message of Jesus Christ. Now, why is this happening? It's happening because a a Chinese Christian decided that God wanted him to step in and change something. And I'll tell you what, since that guy stepped in, there is far more freedom for the gospel to go. And we can only tell you of the amazing things that God is doing. But there is opposition. There is persecution. So what is this man to do? Keep going. Trust in Jesus because Jesus has called him to be an agent for change in a place that is a dangerous place to be a Christian. Folks, I don't believe we will ever get to the point in America where that will be true for us, but if it will, what are we going to do? I pray that we will follow the example of Jesus, who in a very messed up nation, full of so many different philosophical ideologies, stepped in and obeyed the will of his Father. As we go to God in prayer right now, I want to encourage everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus to do the same thing. Step up. Don't step back. As hard as it may be for you to make a decision on Tuesday, and I've seen the reports of people saying you don't need to report, I don't need to vote, 
as well-trusted as these, some of these pastors are, I don't believe that that's Jesus' response. Jesus' response is to step in, make a difference. But I recognize this, it's a tough choice. And I want to encourage you to take a moment, even a minute or two right now, and say, God, before Tuesday, when you do such a work on my heart that through your Holy Spirit, I know that when I put my vote on that card, I'm doing what you've called me to do. And I'll trust you with the rest. Folks, however we wake up on Wednesday morning, we know this. It doesn't matter who sits in the White House. Jesus Christ sits on the throne. But we also know this. Change is going to happen in this nation, not from the top down, but from the inside out. As you and I step in and live out the manifesto that Jesus has for the world. And that is, Father, change this nation one life at a time. And start it through me. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, your vision for this world was that your rule and reign that is established and functions perfectly in heaven invades the earth. That's what Jesus called us to pray for. He taught us to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, sanctified, glorified, be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, that is your manifesto for your rule and reign to come in this earth, in this world, in our world, just like it's experienced perfectly in heaven. But Father, for that to happen, Jesus taught us that we need to step in. We need to live out what you've taught us. And so Father, whatever that means for people in this room right now, in their own lives personally, for them before Tuesday, won't you, Lord God, through your Holy Spirit, exalt the name of Jesus? Won't you speak so clearly to us that we would be willing to just obey the word that you've given to us? And Father, once again, for this nation, we thank you that your will will be done. But Father, we acknowledge that we have a part to play. We're not going to assume your role, Father, that's yours, but we have to assume ours. So, Father, help us to be discerning and step up. Help us, Father, to be discerning to your voice and to lead in. Folks, in this moment right now, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray. Pray for our nation. We've done it, but I want to do that one more time. And I want you, especially those of you that are really wrestling with things, just to invite the Holy Spirit between now and Tuesday just to speak to you and to lead you. Father, you've heard the cries of your people. And as we leave this place, we commit to being salt and light, agents of change in the world. We love you, and we thank you that you love us. And you've shown that through sending Jesus. We thank you for his example. And in this season, we pray that his example would be our experience 
so that all the glory goes to you. In Jesus' name. God's people said? Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. If you need prayer, you can come to the front. There's also a prayer room off the back. We'll pray that God will bless you through this week. And we look forward next Sunday to welcoming Pastor Dan Seaborn, who's going to come in and just continue this series on the idea of change. I felt that uh, Dan would be a great person to put in this pulpit to engage with emotions, however they are, and really to inspire us to do God's will. So come back next week for what will be a great week with Pastor Dan. Have a great week.